I've learned that building a team of coaches is extremely challenging, right? Like I've had so many good individual golf instructors come and work for me or do currently work for me, but creating cohesion amongst teams in a game that's so idiosyncratic like golf is really, really hard. And so the thing I've probably learned the most is how much interpersonal skills and soft skills are crucial to success in golf instruction or anything for that matter. But that's probably been the deepest thing is just seeing how many different ways people have of communicating something very similar and how easily that can be misinterpreted. So, you know, I've really kind of focused on that and and worked on different measures to, to address that and things that I could create cohesion with. Hello, everyone. My name is Chris Powers, and I want to thank you for joining me on the Fort Podcast today. This show is an open-ended discussion and journey covering real estate, business, entrepreneurship, and investing. I would love to hear from you by tweeting me at Fort Worth Chris on Twitter. Hey, guys, it's Chris. Thank you for joining me for another episode on the Fort. I'm super pumped today to have a lifelong friend of mine, Mackenzie Todd, with me today. Mackenzie and I grew up together in El Paso, Texas. We met early and played golf throughout our junior career, and we've remained connected even after all these years. I haven't seen Mackenzie in, I don't know, five or 10 years, but we always seem to keep chatting. So Mackenzie is the founder and the CEO of UGP, which is Urban Golf Performance out of L.A., Um, He's built a pretty remarkable business. And so we're going to talk about his business, his story, what's going on kind of in the last 90 days from his viewpoint out in L.A. and then have a fun conversation about golf. So, Mackenzie, thank you for joining me today. Chris, thanks for having me, bud. Appreciate it, man. It's good to hear your voice. I know, man. Will you uh, will you give like a couple minutes of kind of your story leading out from golf out to L.A. and how UGP came to be? Yeah. Well, essentially, like you said, I mean, we grew up there at El Paso Country Club and Coronado and everything on the west side of El Paso. Right when I was about uh, 16, I think, I was one of the better players in the city, probably top three, top five in the city. And I went to uh, IMG Academy. I went to Bradenton Academy uh, and went and lived there as a junior golfer in high school. And so I was there for a year. And that was kind of where a lot of the ideas for UGP came to be. I was there for a year and was there with like, you know, Casey Wittenberg and Paula Creamer and Julieta Granada, a bunch of great players that ended up becoming good PGA Tour and LPGA Tour players, had major success. And um, so I got exposed to sort of the full sort of athletic, uh, academic sort of combination, kind of getting ready for college golf. And uh, actually used to, I used to send you like drawings and clippings. and I'd mail them to you back before email, actually. I'd, yeah. I'd put them in the mail and I'd draw like diagrams for you of what I was learning and I'd send it to you because you're, 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 you're younger than me. So I'd send you stuff to keep kind of the mentorship process going. So I went through that and then I went, then I came back to El Paso, graduated there, uh, high school, and I went to go play college golf at University of Colorado in Boulder. Played for that team for a short time, uh, bounced around a little bit, which is the story of my life. Finished college at CU though. Got my degree in psychology with a background in neurobiology, was pre-med, and then deferred from medical school, and then moved to California to play the mini tours. I played for like a really short time on the mini tours, ran out of money, and then sort of saw this window. I got engaged to my wife-to-be and 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 was like, I got to kind of go down this pathway if I want to have autonomy in my life and stay connected to the game of golf. 
So I started kind of drawing out business plans and working kind of every job in the golf industry, everything from like running a driving range to working at Austin Golf Club, uh, Barton Creek, these places from really exclusive high-end clubs to public driving ranges and, and outdoor and indoor academies and sort of learn the landscape from the teaching side and everything else like that. And then before I knew it, I got an opportunity to at least 300 square feet uh, inside of a thousand square foot mom and pop like golf fitness studio right in West LA. And within a few months, I was, you know, banking it, killing it. Started with like a $50,000 loan <laughs> and a little girl at home and no operating capital and just got it done little by little. Within three months, I hired my first employee. And then within nine months, I leased my own building. And then within four years, I attracted a pretty famous investor entrepreneur. And then it's we're going into our eighth year now. And it's a team of 42 people and three locations in Southern California and a corporate office and the living the dream over here, growing a company. I love it, man. In the three in the 300 square feet, what were you doing? Teaching people like indoors? Yeah. So they gave me 300 square feet and I bought a $48,000 golf simulator, like with uh, high speed cameras, 3D motion plate in the ground, force plate in the ground. You know, uh, you could play golf courses, go on virtual driving ranges. The technology had gotten pretty good by that time. So I bought this simulator for its kind of mix of playability at the time that you could kind of have visualized shots and have me more about hitting shots and learning the game rather than just getting into the swing. Uh, but then I would get deep into the swing if I needed to. I had the knowledge and the expertise to communicate that to my students. And then I would get in there and I would help them with their fitness as well because we had the fitness studio uh, integrated into the experience. So I could get them to work on their mobility and stability and their strength and their speed while also like getting their technique better and giving them this really sophisticated sort of golf learning experience that that was atypical to what was available. So you you started with the 300 square feet. And I think we talked a few years ago. Was your first investor actually like a client? Wasn't it a doctor or something that you that you was one of your clients that became your first partner? Yeah. So my first investor is actually a, he's a real estate guy. Okay, real here. estate. Uh-huh. And so client of mine loved the loved the experience, uh, kind of liked my drive as an entrepreneur. We became good friends and uh, sort of uh, kind of like a rich uncle in a way, like the way he treated the experience. He like kind of took me under his wing and he was like, I want to see you be successful. Like, you know, really affluent guy, member of Riviera Country Club and Bel Air and El Dorado and everywhere else. The kind of the whole story. Right. And so he was like, I got you and let's let's take this thing big time. And he invested a small amount. And then that kind of helped me sort of round out and finish my first location uh, and like put nice floors and things like that. That's kind of all that investment got me through. Yeah. And he just kind of helped me kind of expand the network here in L.A. and in Southern California. So you go from 300 square feet. And then if I walk into a UGP today, what am I walking into? What do you all offer? Yeah. Now you're walking into 7000 square feet. Each location is about 7000 square feet. They have like four TrackMan simulators. 2,000 square foot fitness studio, showers, lockers. We have uh, body work as well. So we have chiropractic services, physical therapy, soft tissue work, and then, you know, strength and conditioning. And then we have a clubhouse pro shop. Uh, and it's like a full, like, five-star experience. Essentially, like, you're pulling into a luxury gym, but all centered around the game of golf. Nobody really, you know, treated fitness like an a core part of the game really until Tiger Woods came along and he 
kind of changed the whole game. And now if you look at the the players today on tour, they look, I mean, they look, they're all fit. They're all strong as hell. How has it kind of progressed? And is it kind of now like table stakes that if you're going to be a great golfer, fitness and, you know, you talk about the deep tissue and all the body work, it's almost uh, a part of the game now. You can't really get around it. You know, it's, I'd say mainstream media, Tiger Woods popularized golf fitness, you know, but as far as golf fitness being a part of the game, I think it's been part of the game since they were, you know, shepherding sheep out there, you know, and like, and, and, and hitting balls on, you know, these rustic lands, you know, you read about, you read about old Tom Morris and these guys and they meditated, they like hung from trees to decompress their backs. They like did strength, whatever strength and conditioning they did was what was available knowledge at the time. And so I think that strength and conditioning, flexibility, mental strength, being able to swing a whip fast, those are things that have been around forever, you know, in human history. And so I think that what Tiger Woods did with Nike is he made it like, he made it marketable. He made it uh, something that was a product, just like Michael Jordan did with Nike shoes, with basketball shoes. So uh, people wore shoes before Michael Jordan, right, to play basketball. But once the Jordans came out, it was like, you got to wear Jordans or you can't jump, you know? And so I think they did that same experiment with Tiger and as a black athlete and in a game like golf and with how much speed he had and and which wasn't necessarily from working out, but it was really kind of, he had, he was elastic and, and was more like a rubber band than anything else and came out there just bombing it 40, 50 yards past everybody else. You know, it was something that was very marketable for equipment and for everything else in between. And then I think building it into practical training for the amateur golf or the average amateur has been something that we've seen kind of rolling out over the last 25 years, 30 years. And in the, in the fitness that y'all are doing at UGP, is it trying, is everybody different? Or are you trying to turn more people into like that elastic rubber band or is there, is it, everybody's a different case or is there some outcome that you're trying to get when people are doing your fitness routine? Yeah, we work from everything from like a total beginner, like overweight, like shoots a hundred accountant that can barely like, you know, get his ass off of his desk. To like, you know, Colin Morikawa, who's probably the most promising bright star on the PGA Tour that just won last year on tour um, and is like 35 in the world and is just a sick athlete. So we go everything from that to that. Uh, and then we train the men's UCLA golf team as well. So we're their, we're their official training partner and we work with the whole team three times a week. So, you know, those guys, those kids are obviously a lot all closer in their, their fitness identity. Right. But they all, they, you know, because they're all the same age and they're all high, com- high level competitive golfers. But even within that group of t- 18 to 22 year olds, there's kids with back pain to kids with like hypermobility to kids with like uh, that wear out towards the end of a round. They all have different issues within a tight spectrum. Right. So we can deal with that together as a unit, as a group. And then we take them individually as needed. Now, our typical core client, though, the 98% of our clients uh, that are, you know, the, you know, anywhere from five to 15 handicap kind of thing, um, those, those guys uh, and gals, you know, we, we're, we screen them each individually and look at not just their golf skills, their physical acumen, uh, their background in sports and his, their background in history and sports. But we also look at like their motivation to improve their goals, their schedule. And everything else that goes into like designing a program 
that would work for them, right? So everybody, it's not so we we don't get to do what we want to do with everybody, right? Because we live in the real world, but we're working with that, and we try to maximize. One of our values is to is to be as efficient as po- as possible in the approach, and you know, with so many departments and so many ways you can improve a golfer. We want to make sure that, that at the end of the day, that's what our, our core goal is, is to improve them as players. I love it. What is a Colin Morikawa who's 35 in the world? Like, what's he trying to get out of his workouts? Is he trying to, uh, you know, stay fresh or is there something, is there like a goal that he has that he think he'll be better if he can get to a certain fitness level? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, it was funny because I was talking to Leo, who's our, our director of performance, manages the team and. He's from Stockholm, Sweden. He's a long drive champion guy and all that stuff, and just great guy to run the team and and everything. But he, we were talking about it. And he goes, you know, Colin wants to gain five yards off the tee without compromising accuracy over the next five years. Yep. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> and you're just like, <laughs> and it's just so so really. You know, while some guys, I mean, I have some sessions uh, for a, a modest uh, novice player that can't hit their seven hour over a hundred. And in one session we can get it to go 200 yards. So, so it, it just, you know, it's, it's very incremental, right? Like half a shot on tour is like the difference between, you know, 10 in the world and 200, you know? So it's like, it's such a small disparity that we're talking about at that level. So really it's, you know, it's injury prevention, probably primary with a better player. And then from there, it's, it's, it's very, very acute uh, performance gains. And so if we can have them feeling good and they travel a lot, man, it's, it's a taxing, uh, no one realizes how taxing their schedules really are playing on tour at a high level. They're out there 40 weeks a year, essentially, and they're playing six days out of the week. So it's hard to keep your body fresh, but for a 22 year old like him, 23 year old, it's, he's, he's in his prime now in golf, which is weird because we thought of the primes of tour players being in their thirties before now it's early mid twenties. They're coming out of college way better than they used to be. Absolutely. Um, you were a player, obviously growing up, played many tours and then became a teacher. Um, and I'm sure now more, maybe more your role is, is as a business owner running a business. But how does a like a player transition to a teacher? Like, were you always kind of taking note of the swing or did you have to kind of learn to become a teacher uh, after your your golf career was over? Yeah, I mean, I, uh, you know, we spent a lot of time talking to like all kinds of coaches. We, you know, on our podcast. Uh, that we started during this during this whole you know thing that's gone down these last few months. Uh, we've talked to a lot of different coaches. Like we talked to Doc Rivers, right, the coach of the Clippers, and he, you know, he was a player himself. And you know, we asked him, you know, when you were when you were a player, were you like that, always trying to get everybody better around you? Was that like was that always there? And he was like, yeah, I probably compromised a lot of my own success trying to get all my teammates around me better. And that, but that eventually led to me being a great coach. And so for me, I'd, I'd, I'd say kind of the same thing. When I was young, I was always looking at the players around me, my group, and always wanting to get them better. And it was a way to sort of get myself better too. And so I think that once I, when, when I, when I transitioned into coaching, it was natural. It didn't feel like forced at all. I think a lot of players that kind of, they run out their career with golf and they're like, all right, I'm going to teach. I guess that's all I can do. You can tell that they don't have passion for getting other people better. They constantly want to talk about their own game or, you know, they're, they're near misses or whatever it might be, but they're not deep into, you know, diving into the other person's body and, and, you know, empathetically improving their game. And for me, 
it was just very, very natural. I, I love seeing other people improve and, 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 you know, the joy that it brings. And I take it on just as much of a challenge as improving my own game. Yep. And now you've been doing it eight years. How, how do you, are you constantly picking up like little things here and there? It's almost like it is with golf. It's incremental as a teacher. Like I'm sure you're teaching things different today that you've learned along the way that you weren't eight years ago. Like, how do you find that inspiration on how to keep getting better as a teacher? Well, I was a plus four when I started UGP and I'm like a one or a two now. So I don't know how much it's, I don't know how much it's helped my game building this company. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I can still go out and shoot a 66 once in a while, once in a blue moon, but for the most part, but as far as the, as far as kind of what I've learned is I've learned that building a team of coaches is extremely challenging, right? Like I've had so many good individual golf instructors come and work for me or do currently work for me. But creating cohesion amongst teams in a game that's so idiosyncratic, like golf, uh, is really, really hard. And so the thing I've probably learned the most is how much, you know, interpersonal skills and soft skills are crucial to success in golf instruction or anything for that matter. That's probably been the deepest thing is just seeing how many different ways people have of communicating something very similar and how easily that can be misinterpreted. So... I've, you know, I've really kind of focused on that and, and worked on different, you know, different measures to, to address that and things that I could create cohesion with. So you said that you brought on a partner four years later, which I saw in the news, the founder of Tom's Blake McCoskey is a, a partner in your business. How did that all come about? Was he a client turned partner or a friend turned partner or, or what made him want to invest in you? So funny because he ends up, you know, he, he, he came in as a customer and, and fell in love with the company just randomly. You know, he was introduced introduced through another customer that was like, hey, you got to get into this place and get a putter fitting. You'll love it. And so, I, you know, he reached out, came in for a putter fitting, fell in love with, fell in love with the process of the, of, of the brand and, and kind of saw it as an entrepreneur. And he had just sold half of Tom's for, I think, like 400 million bucks. So he was like, you know, pretty young in his early 40s with a lot of money and with a lot of a lot of time because he had relieved himself of his duties as a CEO of the company and had put together a hundred million dollar fund to invest into other businesses. And so just fell in love with the brand, caught him at the right time. And like I said, he went in for a putter fitting. Next thing you know, he's working out there, he's taking golf lessons there, he's getting body work there, and he's like, This is man, it's like I'm three months in. I'm, I'm thousands of dollars in. This is a good business here. Yeah, <laughs> and, it's all, and it's all and it's always packed and it's hard to get in. And so the 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 cookies must be good. And so he fell in love with that. And then from there, actually, one day he'd been kind of coming to UGP for a few months, and I went to get his clubs out of his car, and I hadn't met him yet. And uh, I grabbed his clubs out of his car when he pulled into the lot, and he was like, "Hey, Mac, like, so good to finally meet you." Uh, and I looked obviously pretty worn out, <laughs> you know, four years of building the company to that point from nothing was, was pretty heavy with, especially with a small family at home too. And so he sees me in the lot all burnt out and he goes, Hey man, if you ever want to come to Tom's headquarters and sit down with me, I'd love to, you know, mentor you and give you some advice. And I was like, Oh, that's, that's so good of you. And, um, and I was actually, I was like, it's so funny meeting you in the parking lot here. Uh, I just had a flashback to college. I know your little brother, Tyler, and I, I went to Fort Worth to go party with some of my friends and uh, he's, he was frat brothers with some of my best friends from high school, which was you and, you know, and, and Rudder and all those guys. And so, and so I was like, I met your brother 10 years ago and hung out with him. And uh, so we started laughing and then 
small world. And I went to his office at Tom's thinking that it was going to be me and him in his office and like, a, you know, in a warm cup of tea. And there was like seven people around the conference table and it felt like Shark Tank. So for about two hours, I spilled my guts out, told him my whole story and who I am and who I, uh, where I've been and what I'm doing and what my vision is. And by the end of my rant, he said, I really like this. I got I to gotta go. I got a surfing trip coming up. And he literally threw a surfboard on his shoulder and took his backpack. He's like, I'll be back in a week. Uh, but hey, you guys, he told his whole team, he's like, you guys figure this out. I'd love to kind of work with Mac. And so he just <laughs> left. <laughs> and I was like, all right. And, uh, and so, and, and, uh, and so then like, you know, they, then they really grilled me when he left the room. He left them to do the dirty work. They were like, why did you get kicked out of this school? And why did this happen? And why did this happen? And so by the end of it all, um, I mean, literally a week later, he goes, I get a call from like one of his guys and he's like, Hey, Blake wants to do a deal. He wants to invest a few million dollars and here's the terms. And I was like, okay. And, and from there we went, I, I, I negotiated back and won a couple points back, even though I was scared to do it. And then we were rolling and, uh, it took about three months for the audit and the due diligence and all that stuff. And it was a heavy proctology exam I went through, but by the end, by the end of that thing, we were off and running and it was a, it's been a really amazing partnership because like I said, he's only about 10 years older than me and he's got a young family as well. So, you know, we crack a beer open, we play golf, you played college tennis at SMU. So he's an athlete and a, and a, and a guy's guy in a lot of ways. So we just have a great time talking about live shop, family, sports, and everything in between. I love it. So it's been a lot of fun. That's awesome. Is there, is there like one thing that since you've met him or partner, just kind of as a, as a mentor that you see in him that made him a successful CEO that you've kind of uh, latched onto, or is it lots of things? Yeah. Him and I are so different. So, um, you know, the thing that I admire about him the most, and I wouldn't know if I necessarily latch on because you got to do your thing. Right. But he's keeps it simple and he does the work. So like I tend to try to work around the work. I'm kind of a, not, not necessarily lazy, but I want to, I'm always looking for a shortcut. And so as an entrepreneur too, I think that's a gift and a curse. You're like, all right, what can I delegate? What can I, I find myself often with no job. Um, and that means I need to get back to work again because I've done a good enough job creating infrastructure around me. Blake, Blake is a lot different. Blake is like, I think Blake in a lot of ways, he loves the work. He likes to get his hands dirty and, and he keeps things extremely simple. He can take complex themes or growth growth ideas and then taper them down to like bullet point lists of what you got to do and then he just gets it done and so it's it's been something i've really liked and and again something that i've learned from and we've applied but again it's very hard against my nature too so. yeah <laughs> i think i fall more into a lot of times your camp like what can i delegate and keep moving forward rather than getting messy for longer periods of time we don't have to go too much into it because it's I feel like we talk about it enough, but you have a business in LA. LA has been one of the cities that has been probably locked down more than the rest of the country. You're starting to open back up. Um, as an entrepreneur, what's your emotional journey been over last 90 days? And what's it, you know, what's it like to be a business owner uh, right now in LA? It's more like, what's it like being a father in LA right now? Cause you know, I got, I got a nine year old girl and then I have a six year old boy and a 10 month old boy. So, you know, this has been, there's, you know, they got plucked from school in March 
and we've had to be their parents, their friends, their their mentors. Their I mean, we've had to do, we've had to play every role in their lives right now. So that's been kind of heavy. And then the ten month old is like. <laughs> <laughs> like is pretty much tries to kill himself every day. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> He's just like, no, 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 what are you doing? <laughs> so, <laughs> so we we try to keep him on the on the side of staying alive. But as the as far as the business goes, you know, we have a location. It's been interesting the the position that we're in because we are extremely successful right before this thing went down. Like we had the Masters was coming, you know, the Olympics were coming, and we were about we were you know. We were 70% done with our third location in Santa Monica. So we couldn't have been in a better position as a brand, as a company, as, you know, everything financially we were crushing. And so this, this thing, uh, really threw, you know, kind of for everybody threw a huge, a huge kind of, uh, wrench in the, in the mix. And, and so LA shut down completely. Like we shut, you know, we shut that down Orange County as well. And then, we kept constructing in Santa Monica, so we were able to keep building that location out. Uh, it's been different in each in each kind of area. LA is still closed. We and then Orange County's open pretty much and, and running, uh, only forty only forty miles away with a completely different policy. Uh, and then Santa Monica is got pushed back, uh, but we're looking for that thing to open in July, early July, when it was supposed to be in mid May. So it's been. It's been crazy, dude. Everything from the PPP to, you know, to rent deferment to, you know, legal financial issues to, you know, and then all of my comp- the hardest part has been company morale. Just all of my employees that, you know, live in the big city, like are like in their little apartments told they can't leave their part, you know, and then Zoom calls and keeping everybody like happy. I've had a attrition. I've, I've lost four, I think three or four employees. So just through them questioning their lives. And, and those were people I trained and invested into immensely. So that never feels good. So yeah, it's been, it's been heavy. I've had a lot of, I've had a lot of rough days and a lot of like anger, anger and a lot of uh, frustration and then a lot of hope. And then, but I've got to kind of keep a steady, even keel to my family because the kids sense your fear or your anxiety or your uh, frustration. And it, and it kind of, rubs off to everybody and the same thing for the company so i've had to sort of if i'm gonna go scream i go scream alone somewhere and try to come back with a smile on my face that's awesome dude (laughs) god so yeah so it's been it's been interesting but we we, you know we started a podcast too so we've done 40 episodes we've had everybody from like sean foley to doc rivers to blake mikoski and all in between and so we we stayed busy we stayed productive and we've innovated as well during this time and you know added playing lessons to what we do and made that formal outdoor playing lessons and we've also added virtual sessions for when our players are on the road so you know we've we made the most of it but lost lost a lot of money and had a lot of stress and worked probably harder in the last three months than i've worked in the last three years that's the ride of an entrepreneur man it's not all you know it's not all peaches and cream are what are you optimistic for the remainder of the year as y'all start opening back up are you anticipating people rushing back into uh to get back to normal in their UGP life. Yeah. I mean, you know, in Orange County, if Texas is any indicator for you, it's going to come back real quick. Yeah. In, in Orange County, actually, I'm, I'm here in the Orange County office where our corporate office is down here in Newport, near the airport, near John Wayne. And, uh, you know, this, this location is jamming. I mean, literally we opened up 
a week ago and it's completely full uh, as though nothing ever happened. And so LA is the same. Our customers are like, please open, please open. We're, we're down to come and staff is, wants to get to work. And so I, I'd say, you know, we're lucky because our business in the fitness world in the health and wellness and fitness world and private instruction world, things like, things like yoga and spinning studios and, and, and big box gyms, those, it, those here in Southern California are going to struggle for a long time. And so, but like our business, we have 7,000 square feet. And there's never more than five customers in the space at any given time. Five people per 7,000 square feet with maybe maybe about the same amount of staff members. So 10 people total, each person per 700 square feet. So for the, for the most part, it's kind of built that way. It's very high end and it's high touch. And it's uh, you have a lot of space and a lot of privacy and we're extremely, you know, my dad's a doctor. So we, 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 it's very, it's as clean as a laboratory in a way. So yeah. my last business question, what's like the vision for the UGP over the next five to 10 years? Is it to, to grow across the country to remain a California brand or, or what do you, what's your big vision? Yeah. So the essentially within five years, we'll probably have about 10 locations with a couple with like maybe two to three out of the state within 10 years. I see it as an international brand. I'd, I'd be disappointed if we haven't opened in Asia in 10 years. So I'm looking, you know, my main goal is what I kind of tell all my staff. They're like, what's your end game? Because I always tell them I'm not in it for the money. And I said, my end game is very clear. When I go to a UGP and it looks and feels the same as UGP in Southern California, it looks and feels the same, but I don't understand what anyone's saying. That's when I've achieved my goal. And so I have this vision of seeing it in Tokyo in a high rise, like super beautiful and like, I, I want to kind of pursue it until I get there. There's obviously so many steps to get there, but that's kind of the bigger dream. I love it. All right, we're going to have a couple golf questions and then we'll wrap it up. So my first question is, what is the difference that separates great amateurs from becoming pro? Like somebody that was just awesome, like yourself or people that have pro ambitions, like what is that final step that turns a great amateur into a professional? I, I mean, there's this, I, there's several factors. It's hard to say because each player will be individual. But from what I've seen, it's it's actually distance is one of them. Another is you know putting, right? So like if you got length off the tee, right, and you hit it pretty accurate and pretty far, uh, you have to do that. Seems like in today's game, uh, and then and then you gotta you gotta make a lot of putts. Like you just have to be a good putter. Um, as well everything else can kind of like work its way out but for the most part that's what i've seen where people kind of get stuck they either they either have a tough time driving the golf ball or making putts as they as they advance through levels whether that's from high school to college or college to the pros uh those seem to be kind of the things that hold them back pretty much all of them have good iron play pretty much all of them have great short games but you know making putts and hitting you know, straight bombs, like there's a different thing there that, that, that kind of goes into like pressure in your mindset and also physical ability. So I'd say probably those are some of the things that hold it back, obviously across the board, their minds, you know, that they have a good mindset. So those are the things from the playing perspective. Now, probably the thing that holds them back the most is outside of playing, which is just cash time, essentially cash and timing. Like you, you know, your good buddy right there, Peterson, right? Same thing. I mean, just had the ability to you know, you know, won the college, you know, won the NCAAs, like can't find a better high level amateur player than that guy. And well, it's just cash and timing, having a family, you know, like move, like the, doesn't like the travel, whatever it might be. 
So it's just, but maybe at a different time, he wins early and he's off to the races and you never had, a, he never doubts himself ever again. So it just depends on like, yeah, cash and timing, I think are the, probably the biggest factors. Interesting. Okay. Well, maybe the same question, but what separates like the top 25 in the world from the rest of the pros? Golf's a weird game where they always say like on any given day, you know, somebody on the McKinsey tour could win a PGA event. But what keeps like the top players in the world separated from the rest? Well, uh, it's funny because the, the, you know, those are the only ones that make money for the tour of the top 25, pretty much. You know, that's like they really the PGA Tour wishes they could just have those 25 uh, and just make it all about them. But, uh, you know, you're right. I mean, the, the it's the same in tennis, right? Like when you go, you look at the difference between, you know, the number five player in the world and 250 and on film, they don't look that much different. So it's very marginal. It's such a marginal aspect. But I think what, what, what really separates them the most is how fast you can get going, you know, like how, how quickly, like you can't be, a, it's so hard to be a grinder on tour these days. Like, you know, like the guys that could grind and then finally win when they're 37 years old. It seems to me like those stories are, are far, few and far between now. So I'd say probably the difference between separates them is just getting off to fast starts in their, in their tour career. Now at this point, you know, like just, you know, getting, getting in, getting in the game. Like now with Colin, for example, you know, he got seven sponsors exemptions coming out of college. Right. And he made the cut in like, I think almost every single one, uh, he might've missed the cut in one of them, but then he won, he got, he, he had a week where he went, he went second, first, fourth or something like that. And so, uh, on those seven sponsors exemptions and then gets his card and then, you know, and then now he gets in the same management group that manages Tiger and Justin Rose, Excel Sports Management. She one of our one of our clients is is his agent. And then now he's got the same support system that John Rom, he's with TaylorMade now. He's got John Rom and all these guys. And now he's part of that boys club. And they want to they want to just lift him up. So now they're pouring resources into him. They're taking everything around him, you know, into control so that he can just focus on his game. You know, and they're being very conscientious about it. So I think what separates them is they get off to fast starts and then they get the right management team around them and then they can just focus solely on their game and their schedule and it's, it becomes a statistics game in terms of trying to get the right points and you got to win. Yeah, I, I caddied one event in uh, at the FedEx St. Jude for John and even just witnessing that week, I mean, you nailed it. So many tour players are like in their car, driving all over the country, trying to get a, a red-eye flight into the next tournament. They're just... They get more exhausted just trying to keep up than probably the best top 25 in the world that are flying in private, you know, getting in a limo to the hotel. And they just have so much more energy by the time it's game time. Exactly. All right. Uh, we'll do some shotgun questions and then we'll bring it home. Are you a believer in taking the length out of the game? A lot of speculation that people hit it too far. We need to bring it back. Uh, no, not really, because I'm a huge fan of these like 19 like 20s golf courses, the roaring 20s, like the courses that were built all over the country during those times. And they're very much like shot shapers golf courses. And so when you see guys struggling on tour, like in the US Open, they don't get beat up from the length. They get they get beat up from the rough. They get beat up from the greens coming into the greens and they get beat up on the greens. You know, it, the, the length really doesn't affect them that much, you know? So I'd say at the highest level, no, I mean, I think the golf courses, they can trick them out, right? So, I, I, yeah, I play Riviera a lot, country club, right? And they, you know, they had the U.S. Amateur uh, there, and then they, you know, they have the L.A. Open every year there. 
And you play that during non-tournament times, and it's very benign. I shot 65 out there a bunch of times. You know, you play it during, uh, during the event or right after the event. It's a completely different golf course. Like, they, they lengthen it all out. The greens are super firm. They tighten the edges so it feeds off and then goes into a weird spot. So I'd say for the most part, I'm more about make the golf course more difficult around the greens, make coming into the greens difficult, and you're not going to see low numbers out there from anybody. Who's your favorite player? Favorite, I mean, Tiger Woods. <laughs> like, I can't, I can't help it because we used to make collages just, together and and cut out pictures of him and put them on poster boards back before uh, the internet was around. <laughs> I totally remember. <laughs> I mean, I, I'd I'd slip in a Sports Illustrated model in between a few pictures of him too. <laughs> uh, yeah. who, who has but the best I'm, swing yeah. in the game? Louis Eustazen, no doubt. Who's the best player no one has heard of yet? Uh, Colin Morikawa, I'd say, but they're starting to get pretty... No, uh, every, I've, I've heard it. I mean, he's... Who's the up-and-comer? Who, who's somebody that literally nobody's heard about? You know, we have, a, we have a player that is at UGP with us here. He works with Jimmy Mulligan, who is also uh, Patrick Cantley's coach since he was a kid. Uh, and his name is Clay Sieber. Uh, I actually just saw him right now leaving UGP. And I, I wouldn't be surprised if he's out there as a namesake on the PGA Tour within the next three or four years. He's really sick. He's a really good player. Still a college golfer, but on his way. Is Matt Wolf's swing going to hold up for 20 years? Totally. Yep. Yeah. I love his swing. 100%. Yeah, 100%. Like, it reminds me actually a lot. Like, if you look at it, like, it reminds me a lot of a trace of, like, how Roy McElroy sort of takes the club back. You know, like, it's, it's obviously so different in terms of what it looks like to the naked eye. But that, that, that aspect of getting rhythm at the beginning and getting the club to work with you, and I don't see I don't see any issues with it. Like there's it's just his it's his style, it's his identity, and it's really can if he can maintain maintain his rhythm and his tempo like that, like yeah, I mean it doesn't matter. The face is square it is as square as he wants it to be at impact. Yep. I'm a big GG swing tips, George Jenkins fan. Uh all right, the final question and I'll let you go. Does Tiger need to get to 18 majors or is he already the GOAT? And does he get to 18 majors? I think, unfortunately, he has to get to 18 majors to become the greatest of all time. Um, uh, Jack Nicholas had 22 second places. So uh, <laughs> it's like on top of 18 majors. So is Tiger the top two of all time? No doubt about it. Um, but do I look at like, you know, is, is Tiger the best golfer of you know the best golfer at his peak of all time yeah but is is he gonna finish with the best record i think he has to get those majors i think he knows he has to get those majors too so even though he might not even say that publicly i think at this point i think that uh he's got to get him jack is still i mean you watch jack at his prime man and he was unreal um does he get him i'd say i'd say he hits 17 uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, i think he gets to 17 <laughs> unless yeah. he becomes a client of ugp and then he's going to get 25 tiger yeah, if you're listening yeah. <laughs> there's one way for you to become the goat and i'm talking to him i know i know i'll personally manage that guy myself i'll get out of i'll get out of retirement for him <laughs> my 10-year vision is to take ugp global Unless Tiger wants me to be his coach, and then I'll give it all up and go be Tiger's. <laughs> no, then I'll drop everything until you know, until he just leaves me like he leaves everyone high and dry. You know. <laughs>
Man, I love hearing your voice, dude. It's been way too long. Uh, this was a lot of fun, and I appreciate you uh, you doing it with me. I'll I'm gonna call you off offline in the next couple of weeks, and we can just catch up a little bit more on life. Yeah, same brother, and congrats on your success and everything there, and your beautiful family, and uh, definitely we have some good golf ahead for us. I it appreciate might be a long, it. Long wait, but it'll be worth it, dude. I, after I, I, I'm so fired up to hear your voice. It's just a lot of nostalgia. Um, we will get together sometime soon, and be safe and keep fighting the good fight. And like I said, I just want to call and catch up more. I feel like we have a lot more to catch up on. Good stuff. Anytime, brother. All right, man. We'll stay safe during this time. So I'll catch you soon. Okay, buddy. Hey everyone, it's Chris here again. Thank you so much for joining me on this journey. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, leave a five-star rating or write a quick review. Thanks again, and I'll see you on the next episode. Chris Powers is the founder and CEO of Fort Capital LP. All opinions from Chris and guests of the Fort Podcast are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Fort Capital LP. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for real estate or investment decisions. The Fort with Chris Powers is produced by Straight Up Podcasts.